pray in his wonderful name. Amen. From Thessalonians chapter 4, reading from verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Let me begin by asking you a question. What often takes the focus of your thoughts when you attend a funeral of someone you love or you have been a close friend to, perhaps a family member and so on? What do you think about when you see the casket lowered into the grave or taken for cremation? And no doubt many thoughts go through your mind. Thoughts about the person who's died, the times you've had together, and so on. But wouldn't it be right to say that a thought which often crosses our mind is that which has to do with what happens after death, after the grave? Is this the end of everything? Will we see our loved one again? Is the soul immortal? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? And these questions have always been of interest to people. It only takes the death of a loved one for these questions to, uh, to flood our hearts and our minds. Bereavement is a very poignant human experience. And no matter how, faith our faith, how firm our faith may be, the loss of a loved one often brings profound emotional shock. To lose a loved one is to lose, as it were, a part of yourself. And so it's natural that these questions arise. A struggle often takes place even within the life of the believer as he or she struggles to bring their faith and their emotions together. Another reason for these questions is that death also reminds us of our own mortality. People have questions about their own mortality. What would happen to me after I die? Am I prepared for that time? What would, it, what would it be like to face death? So these are questions which have been of interest to people, but not just to people of our own generation, because Job, who lived uh, way before Abraham, Job asked the same question. He said, if a man dies, will he live again? So the background to our text tells us with regards to questions that the Thessalonians were asking similar questions of the Apostle Paul. 
either directly or indirectly through Timothy. And here's why Paul says what he does in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. So Paul is responding to questions that the Philippian believers had asked him. He must have taught them the teachings of Jesus that he would come again at any time and as such they must be ready for it. But the Thessalonians had taken these things to the extreme to the extent that they were expecting the return of Jesus in their lifetime and some had even given up their jobs to await his return. Others were also disturbed about the loss of their loved ones. Were they at a disadvantage, uh, having died before Christ returns? So what about our loved ones who've died, they would have said. How would they fare when Jesus comes again? Would they be at a disadvantage in relation to those who are still alive? These were probably the questions that Paul faced. It's not that these believers ever doubted that Jesus would return. They had no problem about the fact of his second coming, but they had other questions in relation to the death of their loved ones. And I guess, and I guess indirectly about their own death as well, if it were to take place before Christ came again. Uh, some of these believers had been converted from an utterly pagan culture in which death was seen as something totally void of hope. And so it was natural for them to have these questions, both in regards to their family and friends who had died perhaps, or in regard to their own death. I should say that the term second coming is not part of the Bible vocabulary. The most common term that's used to describe this event in scripture is the word parousia, meaning presence or appearance. And so here from chapter 4, verse 13, right through to chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul writes about some aspects of the return or the appearance of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, he will say a few more things about it and the events surrounding it. Now I say that he writes only some aspects because what he has to say is in no way exhaustive. We're not given all the details about the coming of Christ again. There are other aspects as well in the New Testament that Paul doesn't touch on here in 1 Thessalonians. Teachings from the lips of Jesus, from Paul himself and the other New Testament writers. And we've seen some of that in the book of Revelation. And even then the New Testament doesn't answer all the questions that we have or may have about the second coming of Christ, about eschatology or the last things about life after death and so on. You know, we would like to know all the details, wouldn't we? But the scriptures are silent on many of the details. But what God does say in his word about this subject is sufficient for us. It is more than enough for a strong faith in Christ. And we must also remember that Paul's purpose here is not to answer academic questions about the last things, his purpose is to comfort these Thessalonian believers in their bereavement. And he says in verse 18 that the believers are to encourage each other with what he has to say about this subject. Well, how does Paul set about to answer the Thessalonian questions on this matter? He begins by saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep 
that you may not grieve as others do. In other words, as the unbelieving world does, who have no hope. Paul wants us to grieve with an informed grief. It's a grief that has hope. And I wonder if you notice from the text that Paul maintains that our hope for the future is grounded on the finished work of the Lord Jesus. That's a primary truth upon which he bases this hope we have. It's a non-negotiable truth. It's foundational to our belief in all that Paul's going to say about those who've died in Christ and their future, the future of those who are alive as well when Christ returns. He says that this hope is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe, he says, that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. There it is. In other words, on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God will do this in time to come. He will bring with Jesus those who have died in him. The truth he is affirming here is that our future is shaped by the past. That's the key in this passage. If in the past God was able to raise his son from the dead, then it's no problem for him to raise the dead as well in the future resurrection. And that's Paul's argument here, isn't it? If you don't believe, let me say this from the outset, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, in the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you will not find hope in what this passage is speaking about. It's as simple as that. Our belief in a crucified and resurrected Jesus is the basis for our faith in the events of the Perusia. And this is what he wants to bring home to his readers. So I've broken the passage up into four areas. Can you bring that slide up, please, Jack? The conviction of the Lord's return. And then secondly, conviction about those who fall asleep. Thirdly, the reason for this conviction. And then finally, the outcome of it all. So look firstly at the conviction of the Lord's return. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Before Paul goes on to answer their question about the return of Jesus, he wants his readers to be convinced. We don't want you to be ignorant, he says. They need to be convinced about these things because the conviction of the matter will bring hope and assurance in the face of death and what follows it. It will, as he says, put us into a different category of mourners. We will not grieve like the rest of people who have no hope, he says. Notice he's not saying that it's wrong to grieve at the passing of people we love. Grieving is natural, and sometimes it's even necessary. Have you ever felt as a Christian you shouldn't grieve or be sad because you have lost someone you truly love? Perhaps because you believe that you should be brave or because you think others expect you not to show your emotions because the person who's died has died in Christ? Well, the passage does not align with that thinking, does it? We can grieve. We do grieve at the loss of someone we love. Grieve, says Paul, but grieve as those who have hope. 
hope in the Lord Jesus. Why? Because if we are convinced about the teachings of Scripture, and in particular about the things that, that our text deals with, which relate to the appearance of Christ, then we will grieve with hope. Our grieving will be sustained with the certainty of what is to come. We will not grieve as those who have no hope. It will set us apart, won't it, from those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. My friends, this is the distinguishing mark of the Christian mourner, if I can put it that way. It's that we grieve with hope, we mourn with hope. You know, I've done quite a few funerals over my time in ministry, both of believers and those also who are outside the church. And I can, I can at times sense when people grieve with no hope, where there's been no evidence of faith in Christ on the part of the one who has departed and also those who are left behind. And there are times when people are devastated at their loss. And some express this sense of loss and hopelessness to me. And it relates to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that was read to us. He says that if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But that's not the case with those who are in Christ because our hope is unlike any other and we will see that it's grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our sorrow as well is unlike any other sorrow because it's embraced by our hope. But notice what brings this hope. It's knowledge. It's conviction. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant, he says. Knowledge is the key to many blessings. Whereas on the other hand, ignorance is the cause behind many problems of the Christian faith and life. In one of the peanut cartoons uh, I read, there's a conversation taking place between Lucy and Linus. And looking out of the window, Lucy wonders, Boy, look at the rain. What if it floods the whole world? It will never do that, says Linus. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Oh, boy, you've taken a great load off my mind, says Lucy. To which Linus replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. <laughs> Yes, good sound theology is an important foundation for our faith. So before we go any further, ask yourself, what is my hope based on? If I am certain about the coming of the Lord, for example, or even if I'm certain about my salvation, what are my convictions based on? Is it based on my feelings with regards to the matter? Or is it based on the conviction of God's word, that this word is true. If it isn't, then my friends, it will be unstable. There's no certainty when it comes to feelings, is there? Our feelings are up one day and they're down the next. They're all over the place. 
If that's the case, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we will be tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine and trickery and of the craftiness of people. Here's the need then to be convinced. Now what are we to be convinced about here in our text this morning? So notice secondly, the conviction about those who fall asleep. Paul says it's in regards to the Christian dead. He says it's about those who fall asleep. Paul refers to people who have died as those who have fallen asleep. He does it again in verse 14 and 15. Now why does he use this metaphor? Is he saying that the dead enter a state of unconsciousness? <clears throat> Obviously not. You see, the reason behind you seeing death as sleep is because sleep is only temporary. And so also is death. Just as people wake up out of sleep, so also will there be a waking up from death. And this isn't just Paul's idea to see death as sleep. It's right throughout the scriptures. It's there in the Old Testament as well. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of death will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus too saw death as sleep and the resurrection as a wakening up. As we heard in the children's talk at the grave of Lazarus, what does he say? Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I will go and I will wake him up. At the home of Jairus as well, Jairus' daughter had died. Jesus enters that home and he says, the child is not dead, she's asleep. And so here then Paul could refer to those who have died as those who had fallen asleep. And it's interesting to read the letters of Paul where he refers to death. He speaks of death almost as a matter of fact. For example, 2 Timothy 4, while awaiting execution in a Roman prison, he refers to his death almost as something on his busy agenda. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. He's saying, hey, Timothy, preach the word, correct, rebuke, encourage, and so on. But as for me, Timothy, I'm about to go home. It's time to say goodbye, mate. For Paul, there's no fear in those words. There's no grim cry of determination. There's no holding onto this earthly body. Why? Because he sees death as sleep, a falling asleep and a waking up in the presence of the Lord Jesus. There's a story told by a Norwegian uh, bishop of a man and his little son who went out walking to the next village where their relatives were. As they walked, they came to an old bridge and this bridge was across this wide river and it didn't look very safe and it looked like collapsing. However, they managed to cross the river on that bridge and on their return journey a couple of days later that bridge was gone. And so the only way to cross the river was to wade across it. At that prospect, the child began to cry. 
And so the father picks him up in his arms and with the child still anxious, he wades into the water. As he waded across, the child fell asleep and he slept for the rest of the journey as well. When he awakes, he found that his father had reached home and he was safe in his own home. The Norwegian bishop says, and I quote, that is death for the Christian. What we fear most, we never experience. We fall asleep in the arms of Jesus and we wake up and we are home. Here's why Paul can refer to those who died in Christ as those who have fallen asleep in him. Now in speaking of death as sleep, Paul's not intending to teach that the soul goes into a state of sleep between death and the resurrection, what's come to be known as soul sleep, and the Seventh-day Adventist church believed that. This is clear from the very next verse because he says that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. How could God bring with Jesus when he returns the souls of those who have fallen asleep unless they are with him? So it's not the soul that sleeps, but it's the body that sleeps. And what we have here then is that, that, is that at death, the body sleeps awaiting the resurrection, while the soul or spirit which leaves the body goes to be with the Lord. We're dealing here with what's known as the intermediate state, the state of the dead between death and resurrection. It's here that scripture tells us that at death we go to be with the Lord. Remember the words of Jesus to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Philippians 1.22, the apostle says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He also says, absent from the body at death and present with the Lord. Here then is this great truth for every believer. Here's the reason why we can grieve with hope over those who have died in the Lord. It's because death is temporary and there will come a day when resurrection takes place and we will be reunited with those who died in Christ. Here's the blessing of the gospel that at the end of this life it's not the end. That when we gather around a grave believers know that the body is in a state of rest and God raises it up. It lies asleep as it were to awake in time to come. Now there will be those who maintain that the bodies decompose in the grave. There will be those who maintain that bodies are cremated. Those who are buried at sea that their bodies are eaten by fish and so on. And I trust you don't get hung up about that kind of reasoning. Paul is saying here that God will perform a miracle and give us new bodies, which the scripture speaks of as glorified bodies, a body that's fit for heaven, for life in heaven. And so this is a truth that we need to be convinced about, that at death our souls go, be, go to be with the Lord and our bodies sleep in the grave. 
there to await the resurrection when both soul and our new bodies will be reunited. A new body sounds good to me. No more exercising in heaven. No more going for a run and joining a gym and so on that we all tend to do these days. Great news, isn't it? This is the glorious hope of the believer. So let me ask, do you know this wonderful hope of the Christian gospel? Not only is there good news for this life in knowing Jesus and the wonderful promise which he gives of eternal life in his presence, but also for the next life because we will spend eternity in complete joy and praise of him who is our Lord and Saviour. So look next at the reason behind this conviction and I've touched on this before. Paul says it's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Greek says, for if we believe Jesus died the word for introduces the reason why believers are not to grieve like those without hope. The reason being the death and resurrection of Jesus. The historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the guarantee concerning our future. The future of those who died in Christ. It's shaped by the past, isn't it? For we believe, says Paul, that Jesus died and rose again. It's an event in the past. This is the Christian fight and hope, the fight and hope of every one of us here today who's in Christ Jesus. Our fight and hope are anchored in history. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, says Paul, if does not imply doubt or uncertainty about Christ's death and resurrection. On the contrary, it assumes it as recognized truth. You know, if I was to say to you, if that intersection out there on the corner of Springville and McGowan's Road is as busy as it is, you must be very careful if you cross that road. I use the word if, not to throw doubt on its busyness, but to state a recognized truth, that that intersection is very busy. So also here, to say as Paul does, for if we believe Jesus died and rose again, is to state and recognize truth. It's not to throw doubt on that event in history. We could translate it as, for since we believe. So here then is the reason upon which our convictions about the future is based. Notice it doesn't say Jesus fell asleep. He's talking about those who have fallen asleep. But when he comes to the death and resurrection, he says Jesus died. He experienced death in all its horror because of our sin. But his death brought about the death of death. In dying as our sin bearer, he transformed death into sleep with a future awakening. One poet puts it like this, No longer must the mourners weep and call departed Christians dead, for death is hallowed into sleep and every grave becomes a bed. This is the very core of the gospel, is it not? The gospel which the apostles preached and that which the church believes, that Jesus died and rose again and from this premise 
is the premise of Christian faith, Paul draws a conclusion. So lastly, what's the outcome of all this? He says, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Here's the ultimate outcome of the cross event and the empty tomb. Here's the application for us this morning from the text. It's that Jesus will return and he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. What a great comfort. What a great expectation. The fact that God will do this. The text doesn't say he may bring with Jesus or he will if he can. Not so. God will bring with Jesus his people who have died in him. It's a statement of fact. The fact is that if you are a believer, if you are a child of God by faith in Christ, then you have nothing to fear. Why? Because if you live or die, Jesus will come either with you or he will come for you. If you are dead before he arrives, he will come for you by raising your body and giving you and, jo and joining your body with the soul and come down to pick you up if you're still alive. Let that be a comfort to you. Let it bring assurance to you, not only in the death of a loved one, but also when you face death yourself. And not just by accepting death as the ultimate experience for each of us, the believer's view goes beyond mere acceptance. It's embracing this truth, it's conviction, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To die is to be asleep in Jesus. So this is our view of death and dying. That the Lord Jesus will return one day and those who have died in him, fallen asleep in him, will return with him. With their new bodies. And not only that, because those who are alive when Jesus returns will join him. Will join the others. Paul says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's not surprising, because remember what the angel said to the disciples when he ascended into heaven? He says to them, he will return in the same way. As which you find, as which you, as which he was taken into heaven, he was taken on the clouds of heaven, and so he will come back on the clouds of heaven in the same way in which he left. Except that this time, when he comes back again, it will be a very noisy event, won't it? Look at the text: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is probably the noisiest verse in the Bible. No one will miss this event. And all this noise will lead to the most wonderful event ever. All those who have died in Christ will wake up, wake up from their sleep and come to life. You know, no one likes waking up to an alarm, do they? If you have your sleep interrupted by a loud noise, 
we probably don't like it. But that's what will happen if you're dead. Before Christ comes back or asleep, to use the words of scripture, having died knowing Jesus in your life, you're going to be woken up by a loud noise. Not one alarm clock, but three. Sometimes it takes three alarms clock to wake people up. Three alarm clocks, according to the scripture. Jesus' command, the archangel's voice, and the trumpet call of God. And you will get up. And says Paul, you will be caught up together with those who will come back with Jesus to meet the Lord in the air. We will be raptured. That's the word that's used here. We will be snatched up. You know, as I see it, Paul is saying that the souls of those who have died in Christ will return with Jesus with their new bodies. And then those who are left on earth will be raptured or snatched up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. My friends, words fail me to, in describing this most wonderful, spectacular, exciting event in the history of humankind. And Paul says, so we will always be with the Lord. We will be with him, enjoying face-to-face -face fellowship with him. Face-to-face -face with Christ my Saviour, says that old hymn. Face-to-face, -face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. Face to face I shall behold him, for beyond the starry sky, face to face in all his glory, I shall see him by and by. Face to face, O oh blissful moment, face to face to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. We will know the Lord in a far fuller sense than we ever could know him now. We will have a relationship with him that far surpasses the relationship we have with him in this life. And so, in this sense, heaven is a relationship with Jesus Christ, isn't it? Our future is not so much a place as a relationship Paul says, and so we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. And notice that it's going to be a double reunion. Not only will we be reunited with Jesus, but with all those who have died knowing Jesus in this life. All our loved ones whom we've tearfully farewelled at a funeral. Our parents our children, grandparents, brothers, sisters, all our loved ones who have loved Christ in this life. So here's one reason it's important to share the gospel with those whom we love. It's so that our love relationship can go on forever and ever and ever into all eternity. So the encouragement is to know that these great truths are certain on the authority of God's word, to be convinced about them and to let it take hold of our lives so that it brings us hope and assurance which is built and fixed firmly on an all-powerful God. So whenever you're faced with the passing of a loved one 
or you face the time of departure yourself, whenever you are concerned about the state of your life and where it's all heading, my friends, remember these great truths. In the midst of life and death, set your hope on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again and lives forevermore. You know, grief has a tendency for some people to choose isolation. But the Lord in his grace wants you to be rid of that tendency and to seek the help and the, and the encouragement of others who are in his family. And here's why Paul says what he does in that last verse. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In the face of death, in the face of losing a loved one, encourage one another with these words. When you grieve, and we will all grieve at some time or another if we haven't done that, Paul says, seek out encouragement. And as Christians, we need to get involved in each other's life during such times and seek to encourage one another with the truth of these words. And what an encouragement these words are. An encouragement for all who have lost loved ones and friends who have died knowing Jesus in their life. Paul is saying informed grief is always better. And this gospel is such a wonderful message, is it not? It's not wishful thinking or some hope that's based on someone's opinion. Far from it. It's based on the promises of a God who does not lie. God who cannot lie. One who is able to do the impossible. So as I close, this is my exhortation to you. This is my word to you. My friends, don't be uninformed, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a great gospel. Since Jesus died and rose again through the power of God, this same God will wake you up when you die and he will give you eternal life. Be certain of that and encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you come again, you will come to take your people to be with you forever. Thank you for this wonderful truth that we can live forever in your presence, to spend eternity with you, we recognize in absolute bliss. And we pray that this truth of our only hope in this life and in death, we pray that this truth will sustain our faith and bring us encouragement as we live our lives in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.